Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. In this special collaboration episode, I team up with the fantastic Dominic Perry of the History of Egypt podcast to discuss all things Napoleon and the French expedition to Egypt in 1798. With Ridley Scott's new Napoleon film officially released, we thought now was a great time to explore why the French went to Egypt, what was known about ancient Egypt prior to the expedition, and how the expedition has left a defining legacy on the field of Egyptology. After a wide-ranging discussion, we also answer a series of members' questions and finish up with our thoughts on the new film. Dominic is himself a professional Egyptologist as well as a veteran history podcaster, so you're in for a treat. One quick note before we commence. As long-time members of the show already know, my girlfriend and I take some pretty radical measures to enable the production of Grey History. One of those is that we more or less live permanently out of a backpack as we move locations every week or every two weeks as we house-sit regularly. We look after people's dogs and cats when they're away on holiday and this allows us to avoid paying rent. Because if we did have to pay rent, then I wouldn't be in a financial position to be able to bring you grey history. Now, usually this isn't a problem, but with live interviews, I can't necessarily take the same measures that I would normally take to deliver the exceptional audio quality that I would like to. As we are now staying somewhere that is both near an airport and near a main road, you will occasionally hear some background noise when I'm talking in this episode. So my apologies in advance for that, but unfortunately, this one is out of my hands. As I said, usually I can simply re-record a scripted line if I'm interrupted, but that's not so easy for interviews such as this. So apologies in advance for the occasional airplane appearance. But before we jump into it, I of course cannot start an episode without thanking the amazing people who are supporting Grey History and literally keeping this particular plane in the air. This collaboration episode and others like it are only possible thanks to the amazing members who are doing their part in supporting Grey History with a small donation for each main narrative episode. As this is not a main narrative episode, I'll save the introduction of the newest community members for later. But thank you so much to those people who are supporting the show 
And if you're not currently amongst this wonderful group of people, then come and join this amazing community for the price of just half a cup of coffee. From the bonus content to the ad-free feed to the new community Discord, there's a range of amazing perks for supporting Grey History. And I really, really need your help to make sure that there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Joint episode, Napoleon in Egypt. Hello everybody and welcome to this special joint episode between Grey History, the French Revolution and the History of Egypt. My name is Will Clark and I'm the host of Grey History and joining me today is the acclaimed history podcaster and professional Egyptologist Dominic Perry. Dominic, how are you going? Hi everybody. Uh, hi Will, I'm going great. Um, thanks very much. Just got back from about a month overseas so I'm a little bit jet lagged and having trouble getting back into the flow of things but Otherwise, I'm doing great. I know that you didn't make it to Egypt, but I'm led to believe that you might have seen some Napoleonic sites while you've been away. Yes. Uh, so I recently celebrated my honeymoon and one of our destinations was Paris. And on the very first day that we were there, I dragged my partner to Les Invalides and visited the tomb of Napoleon and the um, army museum. And that was a fascinating experience. I've I wouldn't say that I'm a Napoleonist or a um, fan of Napoleon per se, but I am very interested in that time period, especially for its impact on my particular field. So visiting the tomb of Napoleon was quite an interesting experience in many respects. I can imagine, yeah. My uh, my partner and I, I made it to Paris for the first time ever earlier this year for, for three days, and we also visited the tomb of Napoleon. Uh, I think my, my girlfriend was... Um, in a love-hate relationship with the fact that she had someone who was just permanently talking about revolutionary history uh, in her ear the whole time that we travelled around the city. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating tomb. And, I mean, the architecture in Paris from the Napoleonic era, the Arc de Triomphe as well, I mean, it's just it's it's gorgeous, really. Absolutely. it's. I think it's something... Um, I think it's something that is quite hard to appreciate until you're actually there just how much of the city centre and old quarter is defined by the Napoleonic era and its sort of architectural uh, achievements and ideals. And not only that, but then obviously you've got the changes that were made under Napoleon III as well a yes. few decades later. So, you know, Napoleon in, in some way, shape or form is a tremendous influence on the architecture that is, you know, one of the most famous cities in the world. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. It was, it's certainly a beautiful city. I'll ha I have to give Paris that. It was absolutely stunning. So it's, it's a credit to both both of the Napoleons of the past and their respective administrations that they were able to achieve achieve those kind of wonders. It's genuinely impressive. 
Which does actually bring me to my first question for you, Will, which is Napoleon's rise and the expedition to Egypt itself, they're both kind of products of the French Revolution in a larger political and social sense. So I guess the first thing that I want to ask you as a somebody who's quite immersed in this material is when Napoleon and the politicians in France decide to embark on this expedition, where exactly are we within the context of the French Revolution? Like, what is happening around that time? Who's in charge of the French government? And what kind of motivates this particular choice? Yeah, so maybe if I start with like where we are in the context of the French Revolution, by the time that we're hitting the French expedition to Egypt in 1798, the French Revolution has actually been going on for quite a while, like nearly a decade. And key events leading up to the revolution uh, were occurring as early as the start of 1787, so more than 10 years prior. And I suppose maybe the obvious question is, you know, what's been going on in that decade? Uh, For context, the revolution itself breaks out in the summer of 1789, which is six years after the end of the American Revolutionary War, and it's actually only a few weeks after George Washington is sworn in as the first president of the United States to kind of give some relativity about where we are now. And why the revolution breaks out when it does is, of course, a matter of uh, dispute. Nothing is agreed upon when it comes to the French Revolution. Uh, historians bitterly debate amongst themselves about the various factors and the emphasis that you should place on them. But the short version is that France was facing bankruptcy, courtesy of its significant intervention on behalf of the Americans in the American Revolutionary War. The French government was saddled with debt, and as it tried all sorts of manoeuvres to avoid bankruptcy, uh, the French monarchy was more or less compelled to summon what we call the Estates General. And the Estates General was technically an advisory body, but it hadn't been called in almost 200 years, and for very good reason. This was the age of absolute monarchies, and absolute monarchs everywhere feared that these sort of advisory bodies could essentially go rogue and create a path towards constitutional government. And that's exactly what happens. The the deputies uh, form the National Assembly unilaterally. They vow to never disband until they've given France a written constitution. The government says, get back in your box. The deputies say no. And uh, when the government tries to send in the army, both mutineers from the armed forces and the mega city that was Paris at the time rebel. And that famously delivers the storming of the Bastille on the 14th of July, 1789, which is still celebrated as France's national day today. And ultimately, the government has to back down. Now, to cut a long story short, for the next three years, France was essentially a constitutional monarchy. So it, it didn't become a republic overnight. Instead, the absolute monarchy, which theoretically had unlimited powers, was now transformed into a limited constitutional monarchy, which was joined by this new national assembly and would be joined by some sort of elected assembly permanently going forward. Uh, needless to say, however, this doesn't go so well. The revolutionaries were intent on changing everything. They picked huge fights with the Catholic Church. Uh, They seized and nationalized church land, for example, and they they curtailed the powers of the Pope. Uh, My my personal favorite reform is the introduction of elections for uh, bishops and the like, which, as you can imagine, 
uh, didn't go over so well when Protestants and atheists started voting in local church elections. Uh, and they also picked fights with the aristocracy as well, eventually ab uh, abolishing the aristocracy. So by the time you're three years in, more or less, everyone hates everyone else. The king actually tries to escape France. Uh, he is foiled at the last possible moment. And the nation is more or less crippled by internal divisions and the associated dysfunction that you would expect from such upheaval. And as global powers like to do, why not start a war as a way to magically solve your domestic problems at home? And so in April 1792, France declares war with its former ally but traditional rival Austria, and shortly thereafter, Prussia enters the fray alongside Austria. And this was meant to be a quick war, an easy war, the kind of war that would be over by Christmas. Uh, and in fact, it was nothing of the sort. Europe is going to see conflict for the next quarter century, right up until Napoleon is defeated finally at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. So almost 25 years later. And given that timeline, it's probably no surprise to find out that this war starts terribly for France. And the subsequent Prussian invasion, which loudly promises death and destruction to the revolutionaries, helps to trigger the bloody overthrow of the monarchy on the 10th of August, 1792. Furthermore, it helps to trigger the even bloodier September massacres that follow the month after, where Parisians more or less just empty the prisons of priests, nobles, princesses and the like, and butcher them all in makeshift tribunals. Uh, hundreds, potentially thousands are killed, and it's alongside these brutal scenes that we get the transition from the constitutional monarchy, which lasted for roughly three years, to the First French Republic in September 1792. And surprise, surprise, despite shortly thereafter executing the king, and despite declaring war on much of the rest of Europe, including Great Britain, Spain and the Dutch Republic, the divisions of the nation don't get any better. And in fact, they get worse. And so as the National Convention, which is France's new government, it's actually a constitutional convention tasked with creating a new Republican constitution. As it starts to purge and execute its own members, civil war erupts across France. And once again, foreign armies are invading simultaneously, and they're not only invading the French mainland, but also their colonial territories as well. And it's in this dark and disorderly time that we get the infamous reign of terror, and you get the whole, all the horrors that come with it. We get the infamous de-Christianization campaign, we get mass executions, mass drownings. Uh, it's just a terrible time, really, for certain areas of France. But Interestingly, it's during this disorder and chaos that we also get some of the most critical progressive policies and reforms that we would recognize as defining characteristics and foundational pillars of many Western democracies in the 21st century. Things like universal male suffrage, republican constitutions, government obligations such as the need to provide education for all its citizens, public employment programs, the abolition of slavery, these are all being pursued simultaneously. So this is groundbreaking stuff. Now, eventually, the reign of terror ends. Uh, ultimately, a tenth of the convention's deputies died in some way, shape or form, either through assassinations or execution or suicide or the like. But France eventually starts to win some of these key battles with Europe 
and the situation on the domestic front more or less de-escalates and starts to normalise. And eventually you end up with the Constitution of 1795, which is France's third constitution in less than a decade, and it's a document that must be up for some sort of award for being one of the most cumbersome and nonsensical constitutions that could have ever been crafted. But this regime, which we call the Directory, does last for four years, right up until Napoleon overthrows it in late 1799. So to come back to what you asked and what what we're talking about today, by the time that we get to the expedition to Egypt in mid-1798, the peak craziness, the peak radicalism, if you like, of the revolution, that has come and gone. The Republic itself has existed for more than five years. And as I said, the revolution has been going on for, you know, just shy of a decade. And it's now that the nation is technically managed by five directors who govern the executive branch of the nation alongside a legislative body, which consists of two chambers. And Napoleon is not among them. He's not a director. He's not a member of the Legislative Assembly uh, in either of the chambers. Uh, He's a general. He's a famous general. He's a national hero, but he is not a member of the civilian government in 1798, but he does have considerable influence over the civilian government because of his fame, his popularity, and his success on the battlefield. Mm, Fair enough. Okay, so that that puts us in a sort of general political and uh, social perspective in terms of how the revolution has been progressing. But for Napoleon and the expedition to Egypt specifically, why is it that they would choose him to be the leader of such a strange project? That That's a great question. So I suppose maybe let's talk about the motivations of the French state and then Napoleon uh, mm. in particular. So there's many reasons why the French invaded Egypt, but I'll stick to the key ones. Um, firstly, as with many things in life, it all comes down to money. And okay. one key motivation was economic. In the eyes of the revolutionaries, there was a view that Egypt represented a tremendous economic prize. And it was such a prize for a few reasons. Firstly, from the perspective of international trade, Egypt was in a prime position. Long before the creation of the Suez Canal in the mid-19th century, traders from India would often offload their goods in southern Egypt, haul them north across uh, the land, and then upwards into the Mediterranean, and then sail them to their final destination. And this was because the alternative was to ship goods from India all the way around Africa, which was a much longer and more dangerous route. So anyone who controlled Egypt was in a great position, not only to secure a strategic trade route to India, but you could deny others, aka the British, uh, of that same opportunity. Furthermore, you could theoretically control trade in the Red Sea, in the Eastern Mediterranean, and to an extent, uh, Central Africa, because Egypt boarded those two seas and was a gateway to Africa in terms of uh, caravan trade routes that dove right into the heart of the continent. So from a perspective of trade, Egypt was in a fantastic position to tap into a range of trade routes and markets. Additionally, Egypt itself represented an economic opportunity. From the perspective of many Europeans, and, and not just the French, there was this idea that if Egypt wasn't rich, it had the potential to become so. 
I mean, after all, it has a range of raw materials and commodities, and it theoretically could be a place to grow crops like wheat and rice, but also things like sugarcane, cotton, coffee, etc. So just like Egypt was the breadbasket of ancient Rome, perhaps it could be the breadbasket for the French Republic. And anyone familiar with revolutionary history would know the importance that hunger had to play in those events. Uh, Furthermore, the growth of uh, cash crops could potentially help to make up for the fact that France had lost so much of its colonial empire in recent decades. It had been booted out of India and Canada. Its Caribbean colonies were an absolute mess by this point in time. So for all of these reasons, Egypt was viewed by some as a bit of a golden goose, if you like. Um, In addition to the economic factors, though, there were considerable strategic value uh, to Egypt, both from a military and political perspective. Um, And to understand that, we probably need to set the scene a little bit. By 1798, only England remains at war with France. Peace, or at least a very fragile peace, had been achieved between uh, France and Prussia and Spain some years earlier, and most recently Austria off the back of Napoleon's successful campaign in Italy. Uh, So the problem for the French, though, was that they had no way of forcing a peace with England. And in many ways, the, the English had the same problem in reverse. The superior British Navy prevented the French from landing an invasion on the British Isles, but the superior French army meant that the British had no hope of a military victory on the continent. So so what was one to do? Um, well, initially, the French had actually sought to invade England anyway. I mean, the, the French revolutionaries are really big fans of manifesting things to existence, uh, but that didn't go so well. And given the superiority of the British fleet and given the absolute debacle that was the French expedition to Ireland in 1796, the enthusiasm for crossing the Channel had waned considerably. Additionally, there was the problem that even if you got the French over the Channel and they did invade England, there was a real chance that Austria or another European power could attack France while the nation's best general was isolated and potentially trapped in England. So for a variety of reasons, the ideas of an English invasion went south, literally. Uh, Napoleon and others started pushing for an invasion of Egypt. And the basic logic here was that if they could strike Egypt it was actually an indirect way of striking Britain. And theoretically, a successful campaign might force the British to the negotiating table. With Egypt under French occupation, British trade interests in the Mediterranean could be decimated, and Egypt's strategic location would allow the French to endanger not only British trade in India, but perhaps British presence in India altogether. Furthermore, Egypt could be used as a negotiating chip once peace talks commenced, in a similar way to how Napoleon used Venice as a bargaining chip with his negotiations with Austria the year prior. So combined with the economic opportunities of a a conquest and colonialization of Egypt, this was an endeavor worth taking the risk. It had tangible military, political, and economic advantages. Hmm. Fair enough. That's very thorough. Thank you. So we've kind of we've kind of covered the basic economic and strategic logic of Egypt, but if if you don't mind speculating or sort of hypothesizing just for a moment, what is the best case outcome 
for this particular expedition. Like if the if the French were successful in every avenue, what were they hoping to achieve? Oh, you know, there's danger, but I, it, wild speculation is always great fun from a historical perspective. I mean, it, it depends how much you stretch the envelope of best case scenario, because you, you do have some scholars that think that the French had dreams of actually, you know, so, so just to be clear, once they land in Egypt, um, they actually will eventually march north into the Holy Land. And there are, you know, thoughts by some scholars that potentially the French even dreamed of marching all the way up and potentially taking uh, Constantinople or modern day Istanbul. Um, and essentially, the, you know, what was then the Ottoman Empire would be reformed and become um, some sort of allied state with the French Republic. So, you know, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that would happen, but, you know, just to, just to put a frame of reference about how, how wildly some people were dreaming, I think the best case scenario looks like France gets a strong, like a, a, a considerable stronghold on the African continent. I suppose for reference, the, the so-called race to Africa and the colonization of Africa as we know it in the 21st century that really hasn't happened yet. Um, there are, of course, colonial outposts and interests on the continent, but the, the continent hasn't been carved up as we're familiar with it today. That, that happens more in the 1800s. And so, you know, I, I think that in an ideal world, the French get a sizable colony that uh, makes up for their colonial losses in the mid-18th century. And potentially, they do end up using it as a bit of a bargaining chip. Like, a, a, if giving up Egypt allowed a lasting peace on the continent um, by, by you know, I don't know how they would do it, but some sort of deal with the British, then I think they'd be open to it. But I, I also think that, the, you know, no one actually really wanted a lasting peace on the continent, and I don't think that was really achievable. So I think best case scenario for them that's still kind of pragmatic is they end up with some sort of client state slash colony that they can use to expand their influence uh, in uh, Africa and the Near East, and one that they can, um, you know, if I if I were to use, take a negative view, one that they could pillage for for economic resources as well. Fair enough. Do Do you have a view on that? Do you have any thoughts on what uh, the what the best case scenario would look like if uh, if the Egyptian expedition hadn't ended the way it had? Sure. So I'll put I'll put the disclaimer, of course, that I am primarily an ancient historian rather than a modern. So I'm not. I'm not as willing to speculate as you simply because that's this is not my field of academic expertise. But I think of you I think broadly speaking I would I would agree with that um with that proposition, if nothing else, because based on what actually did happen subsequently in the nineteenth century to Egypt and to the surrounding nations, particularly the Ottoman Empire, I think although I can't speculate about the the French government or Napoleon's personal ambitions or dreams, I do know that he had in his sort of more grandiose or um, far-fetched moments, you know, he considered marching all the way to Constantinople or to India or even into Russia with his uh, soldiers, but whether there was ever any serious consideration of that as feasible is completely outside my my ken. But if you look at the history of Egypt subsequent to the French expedition, and we'll touch on that a bit later, that is broadly speaking part and parcel with what actually did happen, only the respective power players were a bit different than what the French might have hoped to achieve. I suspect the 
the Ottoman factor is probably larger than we give it credit for because while a hundred years later the Ottoman Empire had famously become the, the sick man of Europe, so to speak, during the end of the uh, 18th century, it was still a formidable political and cultural and religious power within the region. And I suspect that if the French had been able to exert greater influence over the Ottoman Sultan in Constantinople, that would have been a very happy outcome for them. Just to summarize, I think broadly speaking, I, I, I agree with your assessment to the extent that I can confidently agree with it. I think that seems like a, a reasonable outcome had everything gone to plan, which of course it didn't. There's definitely an interesting historical hypothetical around the relationships between the French Republic and uh, the Ottoman Empire. I mean, the Ottomans are famously historic rivals to Austria, which is mm. also a historic rival to France and is, is France's kind of principal enemy during the wars of the First Coalition, or at least uh, initially. Uh, you know, pr we go into this on my podcast, but Prussia, you know, Prussia spends most of its time actually looking at Poland, uh, even in the first years of the Revolutionary War. What's happening in France is a bit of a sideshow for them, and so uh, it's interesting to think about if there had been if there had been some sort of um, cooperative relationship established between the French Republic and the Ottoman Empire, what that might have looked like. Um, and yeah, it, it's an interesting can of worms, but we'll, you know we'll never know. So. It just gives us an excuse to, to speculate wildly. Mm, absolutely. That's fair. So you mentioned earlier that Napoleon had advocated for an expedition to Egypt, and we've considered these sort of larger strategic economic factors that France hoped to gain from this. But what exactly was Napoleon aiming for? And maybe not in the sense of what were his ultimate goals, because those might be somewhat unknowable. But in the short term, at least, why was he advocating for Egypt and why did he want to be involved? Why not stay in Europe? Yeah, so I suppose um, the first thing to point out is that Europe more or less is in a state of peace at this point in time. It's a very fragile peace. No one thinks it's going to last, but it is there is peace, um, except with England. And because there's peace on the continent and because they can't, or the French deem that they can't invade England, that opens up other possibilities. And had there been an opportunity on the European continent, then I think that's where Napoleon would have been. You know, if the war had been continuing with Austria or if it restarted in mid-1798, then that's, that's what Napoleon would have done. So, all of this is kind of the, the prerequisite for this Egyptian expedition is peace on continental Europe. Okay. From Napoleon's perspective, in addition to all the various interests of the French state, this is an immense opportunity to garner, you know, almost unimaginable prestige for the young general. He is very conscious that he's following in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and of Julius Caesar. And he, he considers himself to be an equivalent. He considers himself to be a brilliant military commander. And, and here is the perfect opportunity to prove it. Because this is a chance to demonstrate that he is among the very few military leaders uh, in history that have been able to pull off this achievement. Um, and so, you know, in taking Egypt for France, 
it's not just another feather in his cap, but he's doing what only a select few have have only ever been able to achieve, uh, which on top of the military, political, economic motivations for the French state uh, that we mentioned earlier, this for Napoleon as an individual is the most tantalizing prize. And that's that's got to be one of his key motivations for being such a proponent of the invasion. And, and without, just to be clear, without Napoleon pushing for this expedition, I really don't see France undertaking it. There's no other kind of military commander that has the genius slash insanity to say, yes, France should lead an expedition to Egypt. You know, in many ways, this is Napoleon's expedition to Egypt. And I just don't, yeah, I just don't see how it goes without him leading it. I suppose, though, one thing that, that is probably worth covering, which does impact Napoleon's personal motivations and also the motivations of French society more broadly, although just to be clear, the, the amount of people that knew about this expedition before it happened was very, very small. So it's not like French society knew that the French were going to Egypt before because they, you, you didn't want to tip off the British because with their superior navy, they could they could sink the whole thing. Um, and, and, and they almost do, and, and they do score a, a great naval victory. Uh, but one thing, one motivating factor at play here is that there is something magical about Egypt in the eyes of the French. This is this distant land that was once the cradle of a great civilization. You know, Egypt had captured Napoleon's imagination from a, from a very young age. He, he wrote um, a novel set in Egypt, and it had also captured the imagination of many in France. And, and they were enamored by ancient Egypt in particular. Um, ancient Egyptian symbols and references do actually appear in revolutionary architecture, for example. And so there was this idea that they were going to go and explore the lost secrets of a magical land, visit ancient monuments, experience this foreign and ancient culture. And this, you know, while a small factor from a motivating perspective, you know, it, it is definitely there. Sure, it's not the chief motivating factor, but it, it's something, there is something enticing about Egypt in addition to the proper, to the propaganda value of being able to say that you are equal or on par with the great accomplishments of Caesar and Alexander. Um, but, but perhaps that actually provides a great opportunity for me to put you in the hot seat and uh, ask you some questions about the history of, of ancient Egypt and Egyptology. And I suppose maybe to kick us off, um, in terms of what I was just talking about, how much did the savants and did European academics and the like, how much did they actually know about ancient Egypt and its history? I mean, m my understanding is that at this point in time, um, hieroglyphs hadn't been translated yet, or not at least not comprehensively so. So, you know, was that was that the case and what did Europeans really know about this mysterious land of the pharaohs? I guess there's two levels to the answer there which is from our perspective what they actually knew and was factually accurate was very little but what they thought they knew or what they believed based on earlier generations of scholarships there was actually a surprisingly large amount of that so, yes, uh, just to start off, the knowledge of hieroglyphs and the tra proper translation of them 
that was going to be about 20 years in the future before by the time Napoleon went to Egypt. So hieroglyphs were not understood. There was a general, I hate, I hate to sort of broadly cover things here, but there was a general understanding that the Coptic language, which is the com- a community within Egypt, largely Christian, which has retained its traditions for centuries, there was a perception or there was an understanding that their language had evolved out of ancient Egyptian and both the Arabic and Muslim scholars of the medieval and um, early modern period, they understood that a couple of Europeans had either learned that or figured it out uh, based on their their studies. In terms of knowledge, it is quite hard to pin down because at a fundamental level, the the knowledge of ancient Egypt and its history and society only survived in two forms. It survived in the monuments and hieroglyphs, which nobody could understand. And it also survived in the later writings of Greek authors, particularly people like Herodotus, Diodorus of Sicily, Plutarch, Pliny the Elder, and most importantly, a scholar, a Greek scholar named Manetho, who lived during the Ptolemaic era of Egyptian history when following Alexander the Great, when you had a line of Macedonian kings. Manetho, in his time, about 300 years BC, had composed a broad history of Egypt. And it was supposedly based on, you know, the temple archives and the records of the ancient Egyptians themselves. And it provided a a list of all the kings that had existed from the earliest antiquity, along with some basic details about their reigns, like the length of time that they ruled and some of their notable achievements. So that was actually quite a valuable resource, especially for the um, Byzantine scholars, the Arabic scholars, the Muslim scholars. For them to understand ancient Egypt, they often went to people like Manetho or Herodotus and uh, Josephus as well. Manetho was the big one, but the problem with Manetho, at least from our modern perspective, is that we don't have an original copy of that. Manetho's work has been lost, and it only survives in quotations or sections that were copied by later writers. And unfortunately, many of those those copies or those later versions sometimes contradict one another. They have different versions of the same section, where they have different names or kings are in a different order. So it's quite hard to pin down how much they, the um, Europeans or the Egyptians themselves or the Ottoman scholars, it's hard to pin down how much they genuinely knew about the history of the pharaonic period and what it involved or what it represented. That being said, the Arabic and Muslim scholars were actually, at least the ones living in Egypt, were very interested in the antiquity of the country. There's a I think a, a common perception, especially among the Western public, that Muslims generally are not interested in scholarship, that they're only interested in the Quran and everything before the Quran is heretical. That is absolutely not the case. And when the more you learn about the Muslim and Arabic scholars, the more you realize that they were fascinated by antiquity and they were very interested in the cultures that surrounded them, which were part of the lands they ruled but which were also beyond their borders and part of the wider world. So there is a, there is a tradition of about, a, you know, 
a good five or 600 years of notable scholars that we know about, um, people like al-Idrisi, al-Nuwayri, and Ibn Washia, who within Egypt would travel around the country to visit the ancient ruins of temples and monuments. Some of them even went inside monuments like the pyramids, and they made records or accounts of them. And they also spoke to the locals and, you know, copied down or recorded local traditions. So there actually was already a form of Egyptology happening within Egypt itself. The problem was that they, these Muslim scholars did not have a knowledge or understanding of hieroglyphs. So a lot of what they were learning was based on the later Greek writers, some of which was either incorrect or contradictory, some of which was based on local traditions, and those obviously evolve over time and they change, they become more grandiose, and in some cases they completely wander away from the truth. But there was a general understanding that the culture of ancient Egypt had been an important one, that it had been a place of learning and great achievements. I mean, that was almost self-evident to them. They looked at the pyramids and the temples and they could see these were sophisticated peoples who had achieved great things. So I guess broadly speaking, when, when Napoleon started putting the expedition together and the savants were being recruited, again, they also did not know where they were going. There are sort of diary records from some of the savants, some of the quite famous savants, who mentioned that they're getting on the ships or that they're preparing to go on these ex this expedition. And they have no idea what the destination is. They know that it's important. They know there is a scientific contingent, but some of them have no idea where they are going. And that's quite an interesting feature of it that we could dive a lot deeper into. But I would say that broadly speaking, the savants, at least the savants who were focused on history, because we should remember that the savants actually included people like geologists and botanists and sort of wildlife experts and theologians. There was a whole range of people. They weren't just uh, antiquarians or historians. Broadly speaking, I would say they had a basic idea of who the pharaohs had been and what they represented. But a lot of that was filtered through later traditions like the Greek authors, Manetho, Herodotus, etc. A lot of it had been filtered through the Bible. The books of Exodus in particular shaped a lot of uh, Western Christian understanding of who the pharaohs had been. And there was, to some degree, understanding that Egypt had always been a place of great learning and antiquity and knowledge. And that had given rise to all sorts of myths, which, again, we could go into in greater detail. But I think when the savants stepped off the boat and found themselves at Alexandria, probably their best knowledge or their best understanding actually would have been about the Ptolemies and the Roman periods. So they actually picked a good destination for their disembarkation because in terms of the earliest monuments, the, the classic Egyptian pharaohs, their knowledge there was very limited. Their understanding was even less because they couldn't read the hieroglyphs but they could read Latin and they could read Greek. So whenever they encountered monuments of the Greco-Roman pharaohs, like the Ptolemies and the emperors, they had a much better understanding of who they were and what that represented. So to cut a very long story, only slightly shorter, they had a good amount of knowledge about Egypt, but the knowledge they had is not knowledge that we would necessarily recognize as still being valid but it helped shape a lot of their understanding. And it most importantly, they did come into it with a deep desire to uncover what they perceived to be the truth. 
whether it was a biblical truth, a political truth, a naturalist truth, they were very interested to learn as much as they could about this country. Does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, you've, you've got to think that, obviously, from, from a military point of view, this expedition is, is a failure. Uh, I, I don't think you can really argue it any other way. It's great for Napoleon's uh, public relations campaign, sure, but from mm. a sheer military perspective, it's, um, it's yeah, there's, uh, there's a few great paintings that come out of it, but, but not much more. <laughs> it seems um, like a bit of a disaster, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it to, does. To my... I'm not a military historian, but as far as I can tell from my reading, it kind of went badly quite quickly. It goes it goes from bad to worse, I think, is 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 how I would summarize it. I mean, the problem is the moment that you have the Battle of the Nile where the British decimate the ability for the French to actually, you know, ship home their army, you've got this humongous expedition that is now essentially marooned in Egypt. From mm. that point onwards, you know, it, it, it's hard to see how, how things end positively. It's it's just a degree of, of failure, I think, from that point in time, you know, unless they somehow make it to Constantinople. But as I said, I, I think that's more wild speculation than than <laughs> um, any reality. But I suppose the thing is, is that if, you would, if, if Napoleon had told you his grand plans for Italy just a few years prior, I'm sure everyone would say wild speculation and look, there he, there he went and did it. So, you know, who, <laughs> who knows? But I, I do think one of the great successes of this expedition uh, is actually on this knowledge front, that you have this team of professional scientists and academics that arrive that that are seeking knowledge, as you say, not just in history, but in everything from mathematics to botany to zoology, uh, geology and the like. And, you know, from there we get um, some, to my understanding, some of the foundational pillars of what we would refer to today as Egyptology, are you able to elaborate on just what this expedition does for the field of Egyptology and how important it is in setting us up for our knowledge of Egypt today? Yeah, so I think, broadly speaking, I guess that the first myth to dispel is that, as I touched on briefly, the expedition does not invent Egyptology. It doesn't start it. Egyptology had already existed, although, you know, different scholars might quibble on what counts as Egyptology. But study of and fascination with ancient Egypt is how I define it. And that had existed for centuries. That had actually existed in the time of the pharaohs. But that's beside the point. The The expedition, broadly speaking, as you say, militarily was a disaster, or at least a, a failure in its general general goals. The occupation itself had many difficulties, both logistical, uh, social, and political. There was a revolt in Cairo just a few months after the occupation began, in which thousands of people were killed by the French repression. So it didn't start well, and it certainly it doesn't it doesn't look good from the perspective of what we would consider like humanitarian. Uh, causes or perspectives. Leaving aside that sort of moral uh, judgment, which is important to remember, but is slightly beside the point, the the scientific outcome of the expedition, I think broadly speaking, the importance of that cannot be overstated. And there's there's a couple of reasons why 
why I think this or why it's so uh, significant. The first is that for better or worse, the expedition into Egypt represents one of the first times in at least recorded history that one country or one people had tried to systematically document and record as many aspects as they could of another people. Previously, throughout the medieval period, throughout antiquity, you know, you'd had individual travelers who had done that, uh, people like Strabo or uh, Ibn Khaldun, who had traveled around the world or around their corner of the world, and they had made observations or records about people. But this was, broadly speaking, this was a systematic attempt by one country to document another. Now, some historians take that quite negatively. And I I can understand why, because from one perspective, you can say that knowledge is power. And the more you know about a country, the better equipped you are to dominate it or manipulate it or control it to your best interests. And without question, there was an aspect of that. The, The idea of learning everything they could about Egypt was, at least in one sense, in service to the greater goal, which was the revolution, the security of France, and the propagation of whatever empire they might have been able to create. At the same time, the the savants that were involved in this expedition, they were firmly committed to the knowledge aspect of it. They weren't ignorant of the political or social consequences of what was happening. There's actually a famous, well, not, there's actually a a quote from one of the major scholars named uh, Geoffrey Santelaire, when he was in Cairo around the time of the revolt, he was very down about how Napoleon and the French military had subjugated that revolt and how many people they had killed. And Geoffrey wrote in his diary, uh, translated to English, he wrote, the time will come when the work of the Commission of Arts will excuse in the eyes of posterity the lightness with which our nation has thrown itself into the Orient. Let us await the outcome and resign ourselves to suffer here in patience. That's quite a down perspective on what was happening around him. And you could understand why if he's in, he's in the middle of an occupied city that is actively trying to throw the French out. And at the same time, the French military under Napoleon is wantonly killing people in the streets to put down this revolt. For a person who is both professionally and spiritually committed to the ideals of the Enlightenment and for knowledge as a greater goal, the expedition to France was a deeply distressing experience for many of them, at least in terms of the privations they experienced, the hostility they understandably experienced from the locals, the difficulties of just being so far away from home in a completely unfamiliar land. But they were utterly committed to this larger enterprise that they had embarked upon. So to summarize that point broadly, there's really two expeditions to Egypt. There's the military expedition that fails, and there's the scientific expedition that is a great success. The reason why the expedition is a great success comes down fundamentally to the extreme detail with which the savants were taking notes and making records of the country. And this is encapsulated in a work that came out or started to be published about 15 years after the expedition. 
and it's called Le Description de l'Egypte, or The Description of Egypt. It is 11 volumes, and they're massive books. You know, they're, they're not your little trade paperbacks. They are these big, hulking, leather-bound volumes with large spaces for plates or pictures and paintings and full of notes. And basically, the description of Egypt is an attempt to do what the title says, which is to describe the country in as much detail as possible. And the majority of the description of Egypt is devoted to the antiquities, to the monuments that were up and down the Nile Valley. But there is also a significant section devoted to the people of modern Egypt, both to the places that they live, the places where they conduct their business, and their general day-to-day lives. There are plenty of pictures within this taken of people, or at least sketched of people, you know, enjoying their uh, relaxation or going to going to their work and engaged in the business of their day. So the description of Egypt fundamentally is, it's kind of like the closest you could possibly get to a complete photographic record of a society in the early 1800s. And the description of Egypt is still used by Egyptologists today for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it's incredibly detailed and the pictures that they've made of various monuments and texts are in many in many situations incredibly accurate. There are, you know, gaps and issues here and there because they didn't have a full understanding of hieroglyphs, but the copies they made of the monuments were excellent. And the second factor, which was kind of incidental but has become more and more important over time, is that when the savants were traveling through Egypt 200 years ago, the monuments of the country were in a much better condition than they were 100 years later or 200 years later, which is now. The effects of industrialization, pollution, acid rain, general uh, decay, and the occasional uh, damages caused by locals or by visitors, many of the monuments that the savants studied are not nearly as well preserved as they were 200 years ago. In some cases, there are a few temples that have entirely vanished from the places that they were when the savants visited. So in some cases, the copies or the paintings or drawings made in the description of Egypt are the only known record of that particular temple or that particular monument. And from an aesthetic point of view, there's also many cases where they were able to copy colors and paint that still existed on some of the monuments, which have subsequently faded away or been destroyed by wind and sand and exposure. So broadly speaking, the the outcome of the scientific expedition is incredibly important for Egyptology. It, it doesn't invent the field, but it certainly accelerates it. And it certainly gives it a lot more of a, a systematic structure because suddenly you have a massive document that is almost like a guidebook for any scholar who wants to start learning more accurately the history and the landscape and the peoples of this country. And they can use the description of Egypt wherever they are in the world to begin understanding more and more of the monuments and the hieroglyphs that they are studying. And that indirectly but ultimately leads as well to things like the decipherment of hieroglyphs that we'll come to later. But Basically, the biggest, the big takeaway from the expedition is this description of Egypt, which remains a valid 
uh, historical source today and still has many merits to offer. Broadly speaking, that is as much as I can condense the value of the expedition <laughs> in a scientific perspective. Yeah, it's um, it's amazing, not only from a historical point of view, what the expedition got up to, but it is interesting as well, you know, the um, some of the zoologists, for example, that are on this expedition, they will go out to be or go up to be uh, leading zoologists in the kind of pre-evolutionary era. I'm, I'm speaking outside of my wheelhouse now, but, um, you know, kind of lead, you know, putting down some of the key foundational stones that are still uh, in uh, biology today. You've got mathematicians and chemists and the like that are making, you know, reasonable discoveries as well. So it's um, it's fascinating just how much knowledge is documented and recorded and gained by this expedition. I do have a cheeky question for you. There's, as with all expeditions like this, you know, you get all sorts of claims and the like. Some of the claims that you get are things like Napoleon uh, sleeping for an evening in a pyramid, the French using the Sphinx as, as target practice, and perhaps <laughs> perhaps more controversial, I'm sure we'll, we'll speak about the, the latest Napoleon film at the end of this discussion, but, uh, you know, even perhaps using uh, the pyramids as a, a target practice as well. Um what of the various rumors or kind of hearsays that you hear about the French expedition to Egypt? Are there any that are true that you think are particularly noteworthy, or are there any that are that are false that you'd like to to put to rest here and now? Yeah, um, unfortunately, most of those stories are largely fictional, as far as I can tell. There's no evidence that the French ever used the Sphinx or any monument for target practice for their cannons, and the idea of Napoleon, so the story for those not familiar is that supposedly Napoleon requested to spend a night sleeping in the main chamber of the Great Pyramid, the largest pyramid at Giza. And apparently in the morning, he came out of the pyramid very pale and shaken, and he refused to talk about whatever he had experienced or what had happened to him during the night. And as the story goes, to his dying day, he refused to say what had occurred Unfortunately, there's no evidence that that is actually true. There's no record even from the 19th century which suggests that he did that. The earliest instances of the story actually seem to show up in the later 20th century, kind of as like a fable about Napoleon. And there's actually, there's actually a little genre of kind of folk tales about people getting locked in the pyramid or um, getting stuck in there overnight and being absolutely terrified and coming out, you know, completely shaken or changed. Broadly speaking, there's, I'm not saying, I'm not going to say it never happened, but it, as far as we know, Napoleon didn't do that. And as far as I can tell, it hasn't actually happened to anyone. But it's kind of part of a larger genre, which I think we touched on earlier, which is the fascination with Egypt as a land of antiquity. And also for many people, especially those who are only passingly familiar with it, as a land of sort of mystery and esoteric or even supernatural knowledge and um, power. This is an idea that had existed basically since antiquity, that the ancient Egyptian priests had, you know, magic that they could use to speak to the dead or they could use to summon gods and um, command them to do their bidding. And it persists during the medieval period where obviously you get the alchemists who are very interested in Egypt as a source of 
hidden alchemical knowledge and the supposed writings of Hermes Trimegistus, which is a later Greek um, and Christian invention of a concept of Hermes or the Egyptian god Thoth as like a source of wisdom and arcane magic. And that kind of carries on into the uh, 17th or the, the early modern period and then the 19th century where you start to get obsessions with Egypt from the biblical perspective and perceptions of uh, Moses and Joseph and their time in Egypt and the miracles of God that supposedly affected the country. And you have all kinds of uh, people who are interested in proving that those were genuine events and that they're real. And then that kind of filters through into the 20th century where you start to get more science fiction aspects uh, infiltrating these tales where ideas of prehistoric lost civilizations that had access to telekinesis or great magics or things we would consider magic or alien civilizations who helped uh, stimulate humanity's knowledge. Basically, Egypt has always been a lightning rod for this perception of sort of esoteric supernatural knowledge going right back into antiquity. And that, that continues into our own day. But as far as I can tell, stories about like Napoleon spending a night in the Great Pyramid and being deeply affected by it, they're really just further examples of that strange genre that especially exists around Egypt, which is the magical and the mystical. And I mean, I should, I'll clarify that personally, I, I don't really mind these stories so much because they're often quite fun, but there is a level to which some people take them far too seriously and it shapes their worldview. And that's a bit more of an issue, but stories about Napoleon spending the night in the pyramid are just kind of entertaining, but sadly there's, there's no evidence that they are actually true. And there's certainly no evidence that the French military would ever have used a monument for target practice, because that would that would be completely contradictory to the scientific aspect, which Napoleon himself was very interested in. He was deeply involved in the work of the savants. And I think, broadly speaking, although I've never met him, I don't think Napoleon would have voluntarily uh, or would have allowed such a lack of discipline or indiscretion as shooting a monument with a cannon just to calibrate the targeting. Napoleon was an artillery man. His artillery corps was probably the best in the world at the time. They wouldn't need the Sphinx or a pyramid to triangulate their shot. No, and I agree with you completely that Napoleon has an immense amount of respect for the arts and for sciences, and I just don't see him, uh, you know, or his troops for that matter, using weaponry in such a way and and in regarding to, to to a you know potentially a, a night in the pyramids, um, it, I agree with you. It makes a great story. But my my question, whenever I get kind of listener questions like this, I always say, well, where's the primary evidence? You know, where's you know if he's gone and and spent a night in the pyramids, uh, surely he's writing that in a diary, in a letter to Josephine. Surely it's in the documents of his marshals or the other uh, savants that are on the expedition that Napoleon is having regular conversations with, you know, if something like that happened, someone somewhere would have written it down in, you know, the, the late 18th century and our first records for it wouldn't be propping up a hundred plus years later. Absolutely. It's, it's such a, I don't want to, I don't want to say strange, but it's such a specific thing to do that somebody would have remarked on it in their records or their letters. And 
Also, fundamentally, for a man who's as busy as Napoleon was at the time, that would be a terrible waste of an evening. And based on my understanding of it, he regularly stayed up until 2, 3, 4 a.m. and uh, dictating letters or uh, conducting correspondence and plans and things. I don't see him voluntarily giving any of that up just to sit in a, a chamber for an evening. I think it's a, I think it's a great story, uh, and you know, there's part of me that wants to believe it, uh, but uh, you know, alas, oh, yeah. it would make <laughs> a it would make a really good sort of short film in like a horror or mystery genre package. Like that, I would watch that short film, and I think that could be really fun. Okay, I'll I'll put that in the back of the mind. If there's any uh, you know Netflix or HBO directors listening, you've got you've got your lead. Grey History needs your help to stay on the air. With bonus content, a community discord, an ad-free version of the show, and plenty of other exclusive perks, you'll love the Grey History community. I really, really need your help to keep bringing you the show you've come to love. So please, do your part to help make history that isn't black and white, and help ensure that there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow. In fact, There is six, soon to be seven, full-length bonus episodes and hours of mini-episodes in the form of episode extras waiting for you right now. So don't miss out on both the conversations and the added context and come join the most amazing people on the planet. Click the link in the show notes or on the website and do your bit to keep grey history going. I think that that maybe wraps up the, the... the topics that we wanted to cover initially today. And I know that both of us were um, able to get a range of questions from our members in our respective Patreon communities. So we've got a few questions that we want to to cover today before we round out with our thoughts on the new Ridley Scott Napoleon film. Dominic, is there a particular question that you want to start us off with? Yeah, so one of my, one of my listeners, uh, Alberto, asks... When it comes to the French expedition overall, how much was there of genuine historical interest and how much just propaganda in the underpinnings of the enterprise? So, well, let me put the second half of that question particularly to you because I think this is something only you can answer. How much of the enterprise was rooted in a sort of prestige or propaganda-based motivation? You touched on how Napoleon was animated by stories of Julius Caesar, of Alexander the Great. How much of this expedition, both for the French generally and for Napoleon, might have been an exercise in prestige and propaganda rather than historical and military knowledge? Yeah, so I suppose there is definitely some genuine historical interest, and and we maybe can touch on that later, but as it relates to propaganda both from the perspective of the French government and then Napoleon individually, this is a tremendous propaganda opportunity. If I start with the French government, to rewind the clock a little bit, when the Revolutionary Wars break out in 1792, this is uh, and uh, the, the deputies of the Legislative Assembly and then the National Convention will use this language, this is a crusade for universal liberty. They, um, When they start to actually score some successes, they're talking about creation, creating 
sister republics in Naples and in Poland. This is a this is a liberation of the world and a overthrow of tyrannical kings and queens in general. And so there is a tremendous propaganda value for the French public, even in 1798, when some of the kind of radicalism and enthusiasm of the revolution had waned a little bit, there's still tremendous uh, propaganda value in spreading the ideology of the revolution and to be seen to be carrying these principles of uh, principles that are universal and common across all of, of humankind. There's definitely tremendous propaganda value there for the French state. Now, for Napoleon individually, as I said before, this provides him an opportunity to demonstrate his worthiness of being compared to people like Alexander the Great. And it also allows him to show that he's not only a military genius, but also through his sponsorship of arts and sciences. Uh, He can show additionally as well through things like the modernization um, of the Egyptian state All of this allows him to boost his credentials as a philosopher, as a statesman, as a patron of the arts and of the sciences, as someone who in every sense is a a national hero, worthy of respect, worthy of authority, maybe even worthy of a crown. So propaganda-wise, this is definitely huge for Napoleon. Um, I have an answer, I think, in terms of maybe which factor you know, obviously these aren't the only two factors at play, historical interest and propaganda value. I have an answer about which I think is more important, but maybe let's cover the historical interest side first before we get there. What what do you make of Alberto's question in particular as it relates to the value and how much emphasis was put on the genuine historic interest in, in ancient Egypt? Hmm, yeah, so this is this is one of those interesting situations where which kind of emphasizes the point that history is never divorced from politics. What I mean is the practice of history or the practice of scholarly research is never truly separate from the political or cultural priorities of either the ruling class or the society that undertakes it. The first thing that you need to look at here is that the sheer complexity of organizing this scientific expedition, the hundreds of savants that were recruited in secrecy and employed and equipped and sent to Egypt, that's a big undertaking in itself, you know, even leaving aside the military aspect, just getting a bunch of scholarly nerds together on a single unified enterprise is like herding cats, but the cats can actually talk back. So it's the sheer challenge alone speaks to the legitimate historical interest that did exist, especially from the savants themselves. I would be skeptical, although I can't comment in great detail as to how much the directory might have truly cared about this aspect of it. I'm sure a um, scholar of the French Revolution or the early um, development of scientific inquiry in France might have all kinds of issues with what I just said. But at least from the perspective of the savants, what they were doing had genuine merit and was worthy of the enterprise. I think Napoleon, again, based on my limited understanding of the man, also genuinely believed that this was a worthwhile undertaking to conduct this kind of scientific study and acquisition of knowledge. 
as far as I can tell from, admittedly, I, you know, I've only read like a couple of biographies of Napoleon, which is probably more than the average, but far less than the expert would want. He does seem to have been genuinely fascinated by history, science, and uh, knowledge for the sake of knowledge. He wasn't, although he wasn't an expert in many of these fields, he wasn't disinterested and he wasn't a dilettante. He cared. He was. He wanted to learn. So I think Napoleon and the savants themselves, at least on some level, their commitment to this was genuine and historically driven or scientifically driven, I should say. At the same time, though, there's the practice of documenting an entire country, including its topography, its people, its settlements, its natural resources. All of those are very useful to anybody who wants to govern the country, especially if they want to govern it from afar, from France, all the way across the Mediterranean. So even if this wasn't the overt goal or wasn't the acknowledged goal, there is an element of the colonial acquisition within the study itself. Somebody can, had the French retained control over Egypt, they could have used this information that the savants had acquired to become more effective rulers. And that could have gone for better or worse. You know, I'm not going to speculate on that. But it's important to remember that the study of almost any field, but in, including history, it's not exempt from this um, catch is that the acquisition of that knowledge can always be used in the service of more cynical or political interests. And that doesn't devalue the acquisition of knowledge itself, but it is something that is always lurking in the background, both of Egyptology, of any academic field or enterprise, biology, geology, geography. These things can always be used in ways that their creators do not necessarily intend and would not necessarily appreciate. And that's not unique to the French expedition. I mean, you look uh, subsequently to this day, some of, just as an example from Egyptology, to this day, some of our best records of monuments in Egypt that have subsequently been covered by settlements or by urban growth, some of our best sources for the locations or the layouts of these monuments comes from aerial photography that was undertaken during World War I and II and in, in between the wars. The acquisition of knowledge fundamentally can have these kinds of purposes, both military and political, but that doesn't devalue the acquisition itself. And I think from the perspective of the savants and Napoleon, it was a worthwhile undertaking, even if there was perhaps other elements at play in the larger project. Yeah, I think I think ultimately this is an expedition that is undertaken for a variety of motivations, um, you know, there's obviously the propaganda value, there's genuine historical interest, but there's also the economic and political and military considerations that we mentioned earlier. So as with so many things, there are a range of reasons why individual states and individual actors might you know, be supportive of doing something. I do think, just for the record, I do think that there was a genuine historical interest in ancient Egypt from many of the revolutionaries, including Napoleon himself. Uh, the French Revolution, in many ways, is actually fascinated by ancient history and, and the history of antiquity more broadly, uh, ancient Rome in particular, but also ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. And uh, you see this impacting French fashion, architecture, ceremonies, speeches, policy. It just permeated everything. 
And, and part of the reason for that is that this was a republic alone surrounded by what they viewed as corrupt monarchies. I mean, yes, the United States existed, but back then, being on the other side of the Atlantic, it, it was a long way away. And while we now know what the US becomes, you know, back then the United States is still an experiment and no one's quite sure what's going to happen to that experiment. So the French were able to use antiquity and ancient Roman uh, history in, in particular, um, and the ancient Greeks as well, to look for guidance about the lessons and pitfalls and challenges of running republican systems. Now, obviously, ancient Egypt wasn't a republic, but the, re the revolutionaries did, uh, they had this, you know, as you were saying before, what they considered knowledge, maybe not what we consider knowledge, but they did have this romanticized vision of what life was like in Egypt. They had this idea that, sure, it suited their own political agenda and ideology, but they kind of viewed Egypt as this more pure, more natural society, one that had this golden age for its citizens, as you said, this, this land of learnings and knowledge, and one that was quite distinct from the kind of corruption of European courts of their own age. So I do think there was a genuine interest in ancient Egypt, not only from Napoleon, but from many uh, French citizens, not only those on the expedition, but those back home in Paris as well. And indeed, you will continue to see a fascination of Egyptian history throughout the 19th century in much of Europe. Mm. Fair enough. I would, I would agree with that, that takeaway. So our next couple of questions both relate to the Rosetta Stone. So Sarah asks, uh, many people have heard of the Rosetta Stone and know of its importance but what are some of the overlooked discoveries of the French expedition? And James asks a quite a similar question. He asks, what was the most remarkable discovery or finding other than the Rosetta Stone? Um, I, I might throw in my own question in there, um, or maybe maybe more just a prompt of, do you want to quickly explain what the Rosetta Stone was and why it's so important, and then get to the crux of, of Sarah and James's questions about what was perhaps the next most remarkable discovery that perhaps people haven't heard so much about? So to start with the Rosetta Stone itself, for those unfamiliar, the Rosetta Stone is a large stone slab, and it was discovered at a place called Rashid, which is in the uh, Nile Delta, the northernmost section of the country. And the ancient name for that town was Rosetta. So that's why it's called the Rosetta Stone, because it was found there. And the stone was uncovered by French engineers when they were digging the foundations or building a fortress in the region of Rashid or Rosetta. And the reason the stone is important is that it's, it's a broken block from an ancient monument that preserves a royal decree. And the decree dates to the time of the Ptolemies, the Greek slash Macedonian rulers who followed Alexander the Great. And the reason the Rosetta Stone is so historically important is that the decree that the pharaoh, um, one of the Ptolemies, had carved was recorded in three languages. It was recorded in Greek, which was the Ptolemies' native tongue. It was recorded in hieroglyphs, the ancient kind of priestly language or elite level language of Egyptian, ancient Egyptian, and also in a language called Demotic, which is kind of the spoken or this isn't, I don't mean this to sound negative, but the vulgar version of 
ancient Egyptian, the type that people spoke day to day. You know, hieroglyphs are a very ceremonial, royal, religious language that is carved into stone. But day to day, people used the same language, but they just wrote it differently because hieroglyphs are very precise and intricate. But um, when people were actually writing, they wrote in slightly different scripts. Anyway, so the Rosetta Stone preserves this particular decree in three languages, and it's the same decree in each of the three languages. So the reason this is so important is that the savants, could they could read the Greek. They had centuries of um, scholarship and knowledge of what ancient Greek translated as. They couldn't read the hieroglyphs and they couldn't read the demotic, but because they could read the Greek, they could start, or certain scholars could start systematically working through the text to try to identify the places where the Greek language might be observable in the Egyptian. The key that really gave it away was the royal names, which are enclosed in these symbols called cartouches, which is a French word meaning gun cartridge. They're these kind of oval loops, and they record the name of the reigning pharaoh, so in this case, Ptolemy. But the cartouches are there in the Greek, and they preserve Ptolemy, or um, the Greek version of it, and they're there in the Egyptian. So right away, once the stone was discovered, people recognized, hey, this might be the, a key to eventually translating hieroglyphs. We can read the Greek. Maybe if we compare the Greek and the ancient Egyptian sections, we can start to figure it out. And over the next 20 years, a variety of scholars, but most famously Jean-Francois Champollion, come to an understanding of what the Egyptian text on the Rosetta Stone is most likely saying. And more importantly, they begin to, they begin to figure out what the individual hieroglyphs mean, which ones are alphabetical, which ones are conveying a word or a concept, and which ones are sort of grammatical, like denoting different parts of a sentence or a phrase. The reason that's so important is that over the is that it basically kickstarts the translation process. Jean-Francois Champollion is officially, as far as history is concerned, is the first one to really crack that undertaking and figure it out. But that he doesn't figure out the entire language, you know, overnight, but he gets the he gets the fundamentals and that starts the process by which over the next well, 200 years, scholars gradually develop and refine their understanding of the ancient Egyptian language. That process is actually still ongoing, you know, linguistic scholars are still refining different aspects of the grammar and what different genres of texts do with the ancient language because the ancient Egyptian writers were very fond of sort of playing around with their own language. But broadly speaking, Champollion and the scholars around him who are also working on this, they start to get the basics. And that enables later generations of scholars to develop and refine that understanding to the point that they can start translating all of the monuments and texts that are within Egypt. Now that's the Rosetta Stone, but in terms of the other antiquities that come out of the French expedition, there's nothing really from the expedition itself that is on the level of the Rosetta Stone. But what there is, and this is part of the larger legacy, I think, of the French expedition, is that it suddenly it it opens the door both politically and culturally to a whole wave of 
visitors and researchers who start to come to Egypt. There's a long, complicated political aspect to it, including the the government of Egypt under a, a local ruler named Muhammad Ali, no relation to the boxer, who sort of opens the country to uh, foreign visitors, and that's complicated. But you start to get these different expeditions by um, individuals of Italian, French, English, Prussian origin, and they begin to visit Egypt in sort of miniature expeditions, you know, maybe 10 people instead of 600. And they begin excavating, they begin uncovering tombs, they begin finding treasures, and in many cases, taking them back to their home countries. But they also begin studying the monuments in greater and greater detail with every generation as the knowledge of the language um, develops. So essentially, the the overlooked discovery of the French expedition is this massive wave of scientific interest that it kickstarts. Prior to the French expedition, people like scholars had visited Egypt from outside, but they had come for different reasons, you know, political embassies or uh, religious pilgrimages. But suddenly in the 19th century, you get a wave of people who are visiting solely with the goal of understanding the antiquities and either obtaining them or at least examining them in their in their ancient context. So I think that is the overlooked aspect of the French expedition that is not discussed as much as it should be, how it essentially opens the door for countless individuals who are not associated with a military or state apparatus to visit the country and to begin documenting its history with better and worse results, depending on the individuals in question. I suppose there's a fundamental changing of the country's trajectory as a result of the expedition in terms of opening up Egypt. And I'm sure you can make the argument that it would happen eventually, but it it does happen the way it does uh, because of the the French intervention in 1798. Yes, I mean, as we sort of touched on at the start, one of the great strengths but also great curses of Egypt is its geographical position. It's at this um, physical and cultural crossroads between the, the enormous continent of Africa, the enormous continent of Asia, and also Europe beyond the Mediterranean. It sits right at the nexus of all of those places. And in the grand sweep of history, that position is just as important as the position of Rome on the Tiber was to the development of the Roman civilization. That carries with it its own challenges, obviously, which means that at various periods, Egypt is either extremely vulnerable to outside predations or invasions, or it can be quite isolated and cut off if they if they sort of close their borders and they're not willing to engage with uh, the outside world or if they're in conflict with them. But this is one of the things that the French expedition does is it essentially kicks down that door and sets off a whole new wave of political, social, cultural, and scientific engagement. I feel like broadly speaking, though, any any summary of that kind of topic is inevitably going to le- lean into some historical myths, which I would like to debunk, but we unfortunately don't have time. But at the very basic level, I think that's the, the great takeaway of the exp- French expedition is the Rosetta Stone helps to unlock hieroglyphs and the political consequences of the expedition help to unlock Egypt to greater study.
fair enough. I think both of those are, are considerable outcomes that you know have uh, have defined so much of our understanding of of Egypt and have a role to play in well the events of not only in Egypt but in Africa and the Middle East more broadly in in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. When you look at the later history of Egypt, which people often don't when it comes to the French expedition, you know, as soon as Napoleon leaves, it's kind of like Egypt drops off the edge of the world and people forget about it. But a lot of the subsequent history of that region and the Middle East more broadly, you can trace some of those uh, processes and decisions all the way back to 1798 and decisions that were made there. I think you could make a case that it's still being felt today. While we're here, one of my one of my listeners, TV Liu, asks, why did revolutionary France, who was desperately fighting for its survival against a coalition of hostile monarchies and powers, why did revolutionary France decide to invest in sending scholars on this particular expedition? We've covered the sort of political, geostrategic uh, merits of the expedition, but why the savants? Yeah, so there's a few motivations here as to why such resources were put into this scientific and cultural expedition. Firstly, as corny as this sounds to our deeply sceptical 21st century minds, the French Revolution was the dawn of a new age. The values of the revolution were going to usher in, you know, this new era of prosperity for humanity. And as a result, science and scientists were held up with great prestige and respect, as were those uh, who were historians and, and the pursuers of the arts, uh, much more so than they are today, I would argue. And so culturally, science and, and the arts, you know, they were admired and praised. And this, I suppose you would say, is a reflection of the kind of future shaping spirit that was the revolutionary era. And so Given this cultural significance of these pursuits, uh, taking scientists and savants on your expedition made a lot of sense, uh, particularly when you're going to this ancient land full of mystery and hidden secrets and, and lost knowledge. We've talked already about the kind of views that the Europeans had on the land of the pharaohs. The second thing worth noting is in terms of Napoleon's personal motivations and his personal whys, Napoleon considered himself a scientist. He was a member of the prestigious Institute of France. He had a relationship with leading scientific thinkers. Uh, he was an admirer of their disciplines. Uh, and in fact, in his Italian campaign, he had rather uniquely attached a small civilian commission of sciences and arts to his staff. So even back then, you know, he, he loved talking and conversing with great minds. And so in some ways, taking so many scholars to Egypt is really expanding on a precedent that had already been established. And the final thing I would say, and, and this goes back to Alberto's question around propaganda value and the multiple motivations that go into something like this, taking so many scholars has two practical advantages. Firstly, as you mentioned before, Dominic, you know, when you establish things like the Cairo Institute, when you document the topography of the region, um, this helps to cement French power and influence in the region. It cements France as the greatest technical and scientific force in the Near East. 
and it allows them, if they want to, to be in a better place to actually govern Egypt, if, if indeed the French do colonise the territory. Um, and then for Napoleon individually, as these scientists start to make discoveries and innovations, all of this boosts his image. You know, he is a famous military commander. He's known for his military achievements, but he wants to be famous for more than that. And so it's one thing to be a great warrior, but if he can sponsor and champion scientific discoveries, historical discoveries, then he can present himself as a man of letters, as a patron of the arts and sciences, as a philosopher. And so there's a range of reasons why the French state and then Napoleon individually is willing to make this investment in this expedition or this component of the expedition. And and it must be noted, Napoleon's personal interests and commitment to sending what is a, a large component of scholars and the like to what is a, essentially a military invasion. It's, it's very unique and, and Napoleon's fingerprints are all over it. Okay. Out of curiosity, do you think you mentioned he enjoyed being among these uh, great minds of the scientific institutes. Did he consider himself one of these great minds or was he? did he have the attitude more of a, a student? I would say um, it's a bit of both, but he, I mean, he is a member of the Institute of France. I believe he has his membership because of mathematics that he conducted. My understanding is that you like he, you know, he was not one of the great mathematicians of the day, but you know, his contributions and his thoughts were not insignificant. And they, you know, it wasn't just like a pat on the back kind of membership. And it's like, oh yeah, sure, sure, Napoleon, you know, that, that's some great, great figures you've done there. I mean, you know, his his background, which ties into mathematics, he is an artillery officer. So, you know, yes, I, I think that he does have a genuine interest and does he consider his mind to be as great? I mean, I don't know. I think I think Napoleon's got quite an ego, but he, he certainly thinks that he's got something to offer them as well as them having something to offer him. And and he, even in the Italian campaign, he absolutely loved surrounding himself with people, whether they were mathematicians or chemists or whatever they might be. He was fast, genuinely fascinated by scientific pursuits. And, uh, and that, that you can see all the way through his career. Hmm, fair enough. I wonder if his perception of a special destiny would have even left him satisfied with a, um, a status in the scientific community. If he would have, even if he felt he belonged, he would have aspired to bigger things. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because he actually did claim at one point in his career that, you know, if he had done anything else, he would have been a scientist. But um, I'm not convinced that, you know, he would have had the same impact on the field than his military exploits. But, you know, you never know. Sure. Fair enough. So we're recording this in the days after the new Ridley Scott Napoleon film. We've both seen it. Dominic, what did you make of it? What were your thoughts? Are you happy not so happy, somewhere in between? Yeah, so I watched, I watched the film a couple of days ago. And yeah, I, th- I think, broadly speaking, my takeaway from it was it was better than I expected, but it, was, it didn't quite live up to either the material or the people involved, if that makes sense. I'm going to put a massive disclaimer on that, though, which is that Apparently, the director, Ridley Scott, 
is intending to release a director's cut of the film, which is about four hours long. The theatrical cut is two and a half hours long. And I suspect that many of my issues with the film might be addressed with a longer runtime. Because my primary takeaway from the film, I, I enjoyed it broadly. I was I was entertained for two and a half hours, which is sometimes all you can ask of a film. But I think broadly speaking, my takeaway was that a two and a half hour film is simply not long enough to tell the kind of story that Napoleon demands. So I enjoyed the film. I'm curious to see whether the director's cut really expands and enhances it, as I suspect it will. That has happened before with Ridley Scott's films. His movie Kingdom of Heaven was really mediocre in its theatrical cut, but the director's version is delightful. So I, I think I would say that I I mostly enjoyed it. It could have been better, but I am going to reserve overall judgment until I've seen that extended version. I I think I land much the same. I mean, for me, as someone who specializes in the French Revolution, I was just thrilled to see my topic of choice on the big screen. You know, the revolutionary France, I think, is a very underrated and underutilized backdrop for uh, television and, um, you know, history films. So I was just thrilled to see, you know, very, very briefly the debates of the National Convention and the like. In terms of the film itself, I found it quite disjointed at times. I was, I was shocked that the Italian campaign, you know, didn't get a mention, you know, didn't get any time in the sun. And, and I, I agree that maybe that that's where the director's cut comes in. I mean, I always felt that if you look at the interest in this film and the passion behind it, that really this should have been, you know, two films or maybe even a trilogy. And I think they would have done really well. I mean, th- these, these, you know, as, as you were saying earlier, before we started recording the trying to fit so much achievements of, of individuals like Napoleon and like Alexander the Great and the like, they just do so much in such a short period of time that trying to put it into a single film is very difficult. And I do think that whether it's a 10 season, you know, HBO series or, you know, a trilogy, I think they would have been better off doing that. And then, and then I, I, I wasn't so concerned in the lead up to the film, but as I was watching the film, it, it did hit me a little bit. I do have some questions around casting. You know, Phoenix is a is a fantastic actor, but you lose some of the magic about Napoleon rocking up, you know, to the port of Toulon and coming up with this great military plan to take bound, to, to take back the port. You know, this is this is a kid. He, he, you know, he's only in his early 20s. And then Phoenix, you know, you can see the age on his face and he comes across as this experienced military veteran. And yet actually this is someone who who doesn't really have that that military experience. I mean, when he goes to Egypt, in, in reality, Napoleon's like 28 years old. You know, he, so for me, there's a casting question there as well. I love Phoenix as an actor, but whether he was the right person to play Napoleon I think you lose some of the magic of Napoleon's story when his youth isn't conveyed. And and in the movie, I, I lost that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes. It's easy to imagine an alternate universe where there's one film that charts his early rise, say, up to the first consulship played by one actor. And then there's a second film where you have Joaquin Phoenix playing the slightly older more weary um, iteration. 
Oh yeah, no, absolutely. There's there's a lot of possibilities, and and um, I I think my my one hope is that I think this has demonstrated the interest in this era in the in the revolutionary and the Napoleonic eras, and hopefully there will be a few more studios that are willing to 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 take a more serious look at other you know famous characters in this region. Mm, fair enough. Well, Ridley Scott did temporarily revive the historical epic with Gladiator, so. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll get a revival of French revolutionary material. We we can only hope. <laughs> I believe last I heard, Steven Spielberg was working on a miniseries adapting the sort of unfinished work of Stanley Kubrick about Napoleon. But that was announced a couple of years ago, and I haven't heard anything since. So I don't even know if that's still happening, but I wouldn't be surprised if you know, five years down the line, we have we have both versions, and it's simply a case of these kind of these kind of stories of these kind of people who are involved in so many events. They simply don't adapt themselves well to to film. No, I th- I think television is really the format that they should be going to, and I I think that a HBO Game of Thrones esque version of the Revolutionary Era and then the Napoleonic Era afterwards is. You know, it is such an opportunity that's being missed, and I'm patiently waiting for some creatives in Los Angeles to realize the gold mine that they're potentially sitting on. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, broadly speaking, it sounds like we're in agreement that we enjoyed the film well enough, but it left us wanting wanting more in various respects. Absolutely. And um, maybe to wrap up then, I might make a quick plug for the benefit of your audience that if you if you are finding yourself wanting more on the revolutionary era and on the Napoleonic era, then Grey History, the French Revolution, it's a, it's a very similar show to the history of Egypt. We're chronologically making our way through the history of the French Revolution. And as we do so, we're taking the time to unpack the ambiguity and the nuance of what's happened and comparing and contrasting the different experiences of both contemporaries and historians. And so that's how you get to the name of grey history, because history isn't black and white. But if you search for the French Revolution, wherever you get your podcast, you'll you'll find it. And for the benefit of my audience, Dominic, do you want to explain the history of Egypt and what you're up to over there? Absolutely. So first of all, that was a very smooth transition. So props to you for that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the the history of Egypt, as its name implies, is covering the history of a particular country. But as we've touched on in this episode, the the geographical and historical and cultural position of Egypt really places it at the centre of many events throughout history and not just antiquity. So I have embarked on the potentially foolhardy crusade of covering as much of that history as I can. And for the past 10 years, I've been telling the story principally of the pharaonic uh, state and society because that's the majority of our uh, evidence and historical content, but also as much as possible to use uh, archaeology and um, scholarship to uncover the people who actually lived in ancient Egypt and their stories, of which there are many far beyond the pharaohs and I try to bring those to life in as best a manner as I can. So for anyone who's interested in Egypt, whether it's the 
modern aspects of archaeology or the legacy of Napoleon or in the antiquity and the world of the deep, deep past. You can find the history of Egypt basically on all of the podcasting apps and services. And you can also find it at the website, which is egyptianhistorypodcast.com. But yeah, if you're interested in history with as many small details and tangents as I can reasonably cram into it, that is the undertaking I am pursuing on the History of Egypt podcast. I can tell you now, Dominic, that the uh, listeners of Grey History love detail and tangents and uh, digressions, as I like to call them. And uh, for the benefit of my audience, I'm a listener of the History of Egypt. And one of the things that I love about what Dominic does is he gets into the detail around scholarly debates. And it's not only kind of what happened, but the, the various interpretations about how we could see, you know, particular relationships between uh, rulers and members of the court and the like. So I know that you'll absolutely love the detail and the forensic analysis that Dominic puts into the show. Well, thank you very much. And to my listeners, I do highly recommend Grey History. As many people may know, the podcasting sphere and the general online content space is easily susceptible to extremely black and white and sometimes blatantly outright false or misleading interpretations of the past, especially in our own time and society. And I think a podcast like Grey History really serves an important purpose in bringing as much of that historical context and historical perspective to the subject that you're actually covering. So I highly recommend to all of my listeners to check out Grey History. I think you'll gain a much greater understanding both of what was happening during the French Revolution and the time of Napoleon, but also how we actually know what was happening and how our perspectives, both present and past, shift and change in response to our own world. I think Grey History does a really great job of bringing that to life. So my kudos to you, Will, for that. And to all my listeners, I highly recommend the show. Thank you very much, Dominic. And if I, if I can sneak in one last cheeky plug, I think... You know, people might think to themselves, or oh, the French Revolution or the Napoleonic era, that, that's a little niche, it's a little outside of my regular wheelhouse. The foundational pillars of modern of well of the modern Western world and of modern democracies in particular, they to a large extent have their origins in the revolutionary era. And, you know, things like conservatism um, and the like, they all come from the French Revolution. So the French Revolution is impacting your life day to day in many ways, some obvious, some not so. And it's a great way of not only coming on one of the great historical tales, but also of a, getting a better understanding about just why the world is the way it is. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good advertisement, you know, sort of makes you think, if you or a loved one have been impacted by the French Revolution, you may be entitled to compensation. Reach out now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you go speak into some um, areas, of, say, of Western France in particular, that is a region that is still scarred by the civil wars of the French Revolution. And indeed, you know, one can make an argument that the revolutionary and Napoleonic eras, you know, they supercharge things like the unity of Germany and Italy and and so much of, of the world that we know is... Um, is impacted by the revolution. And as you say, for some individuals, that's not necessarily positive memories that they have. Mm, fair enough. <laughs>
But on on that happy note, um, thank you so much, Dominic, for making the time today. I appreciate that it's getting late in New Zealand, and uh, I hope that our listeners absolutely enjoyed this expedition uh, to Egypt and to ancient Egypt and Egyptology, and it was an absolute pleasure. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much, Will, for reaching out and organising this. I wasn't intending to do an episode about Napoleon, but I've greatly enjoyed the experience of really diving more into that historical material and um, expanding my knowledge of a period that is very important to my field and yet has so many aspects that are little understood or um, even misunderstood in many parts of society. So thank you for thank you for organizing this. And I've, I've greatly enjoyed my time both researching it and participating. Thank you for listening to this special collaboration episode with Dominic Perry of the History of Egypt podcast. If you can't wait for the next episode, episode 61, The Purge of the Girondins Part 3, is already available for those members with early access. And they will shortly have early access to episode 62, The Federalist Revolts. Of course, if you're enjoying grey history, if you find it educational, if you find it entertaining, then I need your support to keep the podcast on the air. Help be the change you want to see, and for the price of just half a cup of coffee, you can help produce history that isn't black and white, with a whole bunch of amazing perks in the process. With six full-length bonus episodes, hours of episode extras, and a new members-only Q&A episode coming out in December, there's plenty of great benefits for doing your part to keep grey history on the air. Just follow the link in the show notes or on the website and help ensure that there's more great history waiting for you tomorrow. Of course, a huge thank you to all the members of the community for doing their part to support great history. And thank you to everyone sharing the show with friends and family or helping the show in some other way. A reminder that you can check out the fantastic History of Egypt podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, stay safe, please support the show and have a great day.